Welcome to People Doing Physics, the podcast that explores the personal side of physics of the Cavendish Lab at the University of Cambridge. If you like the podcast, please subscribe and leave a review. It really helps others to find the show. If you want to get in touch with us or our team of physicists, send us an email or contact us on Twitter using the hashtag, hashtag PeopleDoingPhysics. Hi, I'm Jacob Butler from the Physics Outreach Office. And I'm Simone Zagre-Barker, a PhD student here studying experimental physics. Today, we're joined by two physicists who have not only distinguished themselves in the sciences, but risen to the top of their sporting fields as well. Louise Shanahan is a PhD student in the Atomic, Mesoscopic and Optical Physics Group as part of the Winton Programme for the Physics of Sustainability here at the Cavendish. Sitting at the borders of physics and biochemistry, her work looks at nanodiamonds and their use in measuring cells' properties. Alongside this, she has found time to excel in middle distance running, becoming European Youth Champion, Irish Champion and representing Ireland in the 2020 Tokyo Olympics. Noam Moul is a PhD student with the High Energy Physics Group, part of the National Atom Interferometry Observatory and Network, using ultra-cold atom technologies to investigate dark matter. In his sporting life, he has won several French national junior titles in rowing, competed in the Junior World Championships, and won on the rowers in the 2023 Cambridge men's team, who won the famous Oxford-Cambridge boat race. Today, they'll talk to us about balancing training and study, the benefits and downsides their lifestyle brings, and what they get up to when they're not out on the track or river. Stay with us. So firstly, could you tell us a bit um, about yourselves and what brought you to physics and the Cavendish Lab? What at first inspired you to pursue science and physics in particular in school or university? I've always been interested in sciences, I think. Uh, I was the kind of kid, I guess, that was reading a, a lot of science books um, and yeah, re- yeah, reading to so, uh, biology, astronomy, all that kind of stuff. And so I was enjoying maths uh, at school quite a lot two and so i guess that the combination of the two well the 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 field where maths maths and science really combine is physics and so it was sort of the natural uh yeah the natural field i i went into um when i went to university yeah for me i found that probably quite similar i kind of enjoyed the maths and the sciences in school and I actually preferred chemistry. I thought the experiments were were more exciting uh, and I found the physics experiments in school quite boring, but I guess it's hard to kind of incorporate the chemistry and maths. It's much easier to kind of land in the middle with physics and do a bit of everything. So yeah, from there, I kind of decided to do an undergraduate in physics and yeah, then ended up turning out that I do actually quite like physics experiments and I'm now doing an experimental PhD. Lovely. And from our earlier chat, it seems that you're both working at a similar scale, but looking at very different things. Can you talk a little bit about your current research and what you're getting up to in the lab at the moment? Um, yeah, sure. So, yeah, it's true. So I think we, we're sort of working on the same, um, with the same tools, uh, maybe, let's say. So um, I'm part of uh, the Aeon experiment, uh, the goal of which is to use ultra-cold atoms uh, to detect uh, dark matter and gravitational waves but so i guess yeah the scale of the things we're trying to detect so gravitational waves and dark matter is is um generally speaking we would put those things into the the larger scales of the universe so yeah, cosmological astrophysical scales um but what we the things i'm really focusing on is 
the ultra cold atom part and in particular how to simulate uh, um, numerically simulate uh, the atom clouds um, to yeah for example to uh, optimize the experiment or to study its sensitivity to the things we're trying to detect I was just going to say that if our listeners want to know more specifically about the Aeon experiment, um, Tiffany Hart's also talked about it in a previous episode. So definitely check out that if you're interested. Um, so what you're looking at is simulating these things so that the experiments can be better designed later down the path. Is that, uh, is that sort of area you're looking at? Yeah, so so one aspect. So, yeah, simulation, I guess, uh, can be useful useful for two things. One thing is to optimize experimental parameters. So uh, I don't know, before you build the experiment, you can tweak some things in the simulation and see if you get a better result or better sensitivity. So that's one thing. And the other thing is that having a simulation, when you're when you're building a, an experiment which tries to detect uh, fundamental uh, physics, things related, um, uh, no, fundamental physics uh, related things, you, you really have to, when you publish a paper, uh, if we publish, for example, a paper uh, where we say we discovered dark matter, to back our discovery, we really need to show that the tools, the software we use to analyze the data works by demonstrating how it works on the simulation. So it's really a core aspect of the, the experiment. Thanks, that's interesting. And how about yourself, Louise? What do you get up to when you're not out running? <laughs> Yeah, so my PhD, I guess, for both physics, but to me, it feels really quite different. Um, so I'm in a quantum physics group, and specifically, I'm kind of interested in applying physics. And so we do quantum sensing, but I'm actually doing it in biological systems. So, you know, a typical day for me could have cancer cells or worms or something like that on the setup. <laughs> uh, and then I use really, really small diamonds. So these diamonds are maybe 50 nanometers in diameter, so tiny, tiny diamonds and we put them inside cells or we inject them into worms and then we use them to measure the temperature inside the organism to measure the local viscosity so it's kind of really applied research quantum sensing and um, so yeah i really enjoy it i'm part of a quantum sensing group so there's a lot of kind of physics going around in the background and um, and i've got a great team with me so i don't do that much of the biology hands-on work i kind of am there using the sensors understanding the sensors and trying to get the most out of them uh, but I really, really like my project. It's an interdisciplinary project. It's got a huge team of people and yeah, it opens up huge avenues. And for both of you, what was it that actually first made you think, you know, I want to do a PhD and, and then decided to you know, come to Cambridge? I don't know if Louise, you want to hop on that since you just... Yeah, I think for me, you know, I wasn't really sure what I wanted to do going to college and physics was kind of a safe bet where I knew I liked the sciences. It kept me close to all the sciences. Uh, and then I guess kind of as my undergraduate went on, I really enjoyed it. And I guess there was a lot of, you know, you get maybe it's a taste of research when you're when you're in an undergraduate and maybe you have some projects that go on for a couple of weeks rather than just kind of four hours in a lab. Uh, and I really liked that and kind of wanted the opportunity to have more. And I guess physics is a kind of a nice subject where, you know, there's plenty of things you can go on to if you decide you don't want to be a physicist or you don't want to follow academia. But there is kind of a really nice natural path where, you know, you can do an undergraduate, maybe you can do a master's or something. There's a PhD. And um, so for me, it was kind of, you know, I, I knew I was enjoying it. There wasn't really any reason to stop. And it was about finding a PhD that 
you know, I liked the group I was in, I was interested in. And, you know, Cambridge is a, a really nice city to live in as well, which also is a perk. Um, so, yeah, for me, it was kind of the natural progression, I guess. I, I would almost say that I didn't give too much thought to it. It was just the <laughs> obvious next step. Yeah, I think it was the same thing with, uh, with me, actually. So it was sort of the natural next step after doing an undergrad in physics. And actually, so when I was doing my undergrad, I think the the things I enjoyed the most were the research bits. So when we were actually doing research projects and so on. And so, yeah, it was I was just looking forward to doing a PhD because to me, it seemed like it would be the same thing as the undergrad, which I already enjoyed, but without all the boring parts where you have to <laughs> prepare for an exam and so on. So, yeah. I guess, yeah, I went straight into it. And also I've always, so I went, uh, so I started an undergrad in physics um, with the idea of doing research. So I guess, yeah, I've always had the, the thought of doing a PhD afterwards. Mm -hmm. And of course, studying for a PhD is something that obviously takes a lot of work, a lot of effort. And most people, you know, I had this conception that, you know, you can do a PhD and that's it. And there's no time for anything else. Um, but obviously, you both managed to develop very successful sporting careers alongside this. So first of all, what does a typical kind of week look like in terms of how much time you you actually have to spend training? Um, and do you think there's maybe a misconception on how much of a, a quote unquote distraction, you know, might be a way that people might conceptualize having something alongside? But um it sounds like you know it could just be a question of prioritizing your time and managing your time effectively. Could you tell us a bit about how that balancing has been for you? Yeah, it's it's funny you say that because for me actually the PhD was kind of almost a lifeline for continuing my sporting career. And you know, leaving my undergraduate, you know, I did have the option to go get a job, and you know, you nine to five hours not very flexible and not very conducive with training. So for me, actually. The PhD was an option to be able to continue my academic career, but also continue sport in an environment that I really do think is um, conducive to good sporting performances. And um, I think I'm training probably about 10 times a week, uh, a mixture of kind of just going for a run, which is something that might take an hour. It's quick and easy gym sessions, which take a little longer and then actual proper running sessions, which are a bit more planning. And um, so for me, there's kind of a lot of different components to my training in a week. Um, but I do find that it's quite compatible with the PhD. You know, really, a lot of supervisors don't mind when you work as long as you get the work done. So, you know, on the days where all I need to do is go for a run, then, you know, that's pretty easy. I can plan out my PhD training and, or my PhD work and then fit my training either before or afterwards. Uh, and then on other days, you know, running needs to be more of a priority. Maybe there's an important session. I can kind of plan my day more. Maybe I would go into the lab a bit late because I go and do my session in the morning. But then I end up working, you know, kind of through the evening or maybe I might have dinner in the office and keep working through. And um, so, yeah, it's funny. I think a lot of people think, you know, oh, with a PhD, you're not going to have time for anything else. Whereas actually, when I looked at the PhD, it was an opportunity for me to be able to keep running kind of almost the exact opposite of what you'd expect. Yeah, I think it's just that you you can definitely do a lot of work while training on the side, but you yeah you have to accept that you have to be flexible in some sense. So you have to accept that you're not going to stay in the office from nine to nine to five every day. You might so yeah. Yes, for example, a typical day would be a training session in the morning. Then maybe you go to the office, uh, you get lunch, then you have to leave to do a second session. And then you can work in your college or, or something like this for the rest of the day. Um, 
so yeah, I think that there's definitely time to to do the same amount of work as uh, other people, especially if you work on weekends a little bit to catch up if you need to. Um, but yeah, just it's just a different kind of uh, organization. You just have to be a bit more flexible, which which a PhD definitely allows more than uh, school or more than uh, undergrad university. Mm -hmm. And in terms of like the support that you receive from your group or like how um, kind of people have perceived or um, yeah, seen um, the way that you're running your PhDs and also getting to train, um, how has that been like? Yeah, I think we both had very different approaches to this. So for me, I kind of came out and laid my cards out from day one. So when I interviewed for this PhD, I made it very clear that running was something that was important to me. And if that was going to be an issue down the line, they needed to say it now because, you know, it was something I wasn't willing to compromise on. And I felt, you know, going into my PhD, we were all on the same page. And then I guess I've been quite lucky that in the course of my PhD, I've had quite a bit of success on the track. And I think that probably buys me some time or buys me brownie points and um, where people are you know if you're running well people are maybe a little more willing to to allow you to go out training or or maybe miss a meeting or something like that and um, so yeah so I think for me it was kind of a case of laying everything out everyone's on the same page and um, yes there are times when I'm maybe a little less available because of running uh, but I work hard around that and you know I'm definitely available for enough hours in the week and I get the work done um, but yeah, so for me, I guess it was quite different, but I think Noam had a very different maybe experience. Yeah, that's right. So the thing is that, so as Louise was saying, I was definitely not ready to compromise uh, rowing for uh, uh, the PhD work. Um, but one, th and yeah, actually I came to Cambridge, one of the bigger incentive for me, incentives for me to come to Cambridge was uh, the rowing, uh, the rowing, the boat club, right? And so. But one thing, one thing that people had told me when I was applying to Cambridge is that you should be careful when you mention that you row and that you want to row for the, the university team and so on. Because, so rowing is obviously very popular in Cambridge. A lot of people row for their colleges um, and so on. And sometimes it can be a good thing, but it's also a bad thing because it means that a lot of students maybe, um, I don't know, are too involved in, in their boat club. And so they can't really, uh, keep up with uh, acad uh, the academic work and so I was a bit scared that potential supervisors would have this image of rowing that is just a waste of time and that it distracts uh, students from uh, from uh, studying so yeah when I, I applied to uh, my PhD position I did not mention rowing and I didn't mention it to almost to anyone um, until after the boat race uh, <laughs> when, um, just they turn off the tv they're like wait i know that guy <laughs> yeah, exactly, exactly. So, yeah after the like uh, two days after the race i had a chat with my supervisor no so the week after the race we had our meet weekly meeting with my supervisor and um she was saying that she didn't know anything about the she didn't know that i was rowing until just three days before the race um and yeah because at some point you just can't avoid it like uh, it's everywhere on, on TV and, and uh, <laughs> newspapers. Um, so yeah, but at I, that I point, it's it. clear that you can do the job, right? I mean, at that point, if no yeah, one's exactly. realized, like clearly you're, yeah. Yeah, yeah. If, if no one if no one noticed and no one said anything, then uh, I guess it's a uh, yeah. For, I feel like from now on, my situation is more similar to 
the one Louise has. So it's more like my supervisor is being very supportive. Uh, for example, last week I had to leave to do national trials, and uh, she was like, "Yeah, sure, you can do, can do whatever." Um, so yeah, now now I think it's actually better to talk about it uh, when you get the opportunity because yeah, it makes everything easier. And people, even though I was a bit scared that people would not be supportive, everyone is super supportive, super positive about it. Um, so yeah. And I suppose beating Oxford helps a great deal with that as well. Yeah, yeah, that, yeah. Obviously, <laughs> being in the blue boat and beating Oxford, yeah. <laughs> now I've got a, a white card for the rest of my PhD, I think. <laughs> Whatever I want. So we've heard a little about your current successes, but could you talk about what brought you to your respective sports? Yeah, so I actually um, kind of grew up around running and um, when I was born, my dad was the coach at the, the local university and um, he had been kind of national endurance coach and had been an international athlete himself. So I think I was six days old when I was brought to my <laughs> first race. So I'm not sure I had much of a choice in the matter. Um, but I actually only started running myself when I was kind of nine, ten years old and I couldn't make my school sports team. And I, I was getting increasingly frustrated until I think at that point, my mom and dad said, OK, well, you know, if, if running something you really want to do, then you can train for it and brought me down to the local club. Uh, so I think I was nine years old when I started in my local club, Leave LAC. Um, and yeah, from there, I just loved it. I think for me, for many years, there was um, a huge social aspect more than kind of the running itself. And um, we trained kind of three times a week, Tuesday and Thursday evenings and Saturday mornings. And it was just a great you know excuse to go hang out with friends and and yeah I guess as I got older maybe uh, I tasted success a bit more and yeah it was definitely something that kind of I really wanted to do and so yeah for me I kind of grew up around the sport but only actually found it myself through through school and through a very good teacher. I think it's a bit different in, in France because you don't really join a sport with, a, with your school you have to it's more of a club-based uh, system and so the thing, especially in rowing, the thing is that so rowing is not very is not massively popular in France. So it's uh, if you get into when you get into rowing, it's either yeah, most of people most people get into rowing a bit randomly. So um, when I was nine, my mom just signed me up uh, for this sport, and uh, I remember I, when I turned up to the first session, I really I actually didn't know what it was, like most people, I guess, in France. And um, so, yeah, the, like Louis said, to, at that age, the main motivation is just to hang out with friends and uh, to have a good time like once or twice a week. And then I went to, so because I was quite tall, like the coaches were um, keen to keep me around. And so even though I was too young to go to the national championships as a rower, they sent me as a, as a cox a few times. And so, yeah, I guess it's when I go into the competitive, when I saw the competitive atmosphere, the national championships and so on, that I was like, okay, this is something I, I enjoy and this is something I want to be part of. And uh, that's, after this point, I started training rather than just hanging out with my friends. And uh, yeah, I started aspiring to winning medals and so on. And do you think your your knowledge of physics helped at all with your successes? <laughs> because in rowing, like you know, there's like you know, it's kind of like three springs: your legs, your back, yeah. your arms, and running. You know, you can think of force diagrams. Like, is that just 
like an anecdote or do you think it's helpful? I mean, <laughs> no of I wish I wish it could be helpful, but unfortunately, <laughs> no, it doesn't really work this way. Uh, even if you understand mechanics uh, very well. I don't know, it's like, so the, the joke about rowing is that people who do rowing have no coordination. So <laughs> I'm, I'm okay at rowing, but I can't do, I can't play basketball, I can't play football. I like, I can't control my legs and my arms and so on. So <laughs> even, even if I understood like the biomechanics exactly, it's, I would still struggle, I think. Yeah, I think people say similar things about running. You know, people end up in running when they can't do any other sport, mm. like catch a ball or or hit anything. So, but I do think um, what's interesting is the 800 meters is quite a tactical race, and um, and as a result, there's a huge amount of kind of quick, high pressure problem solving. Like, you know, if you're boxed in, how do you get out of it? You know, when's a good time to to make a move and to conserve energy? I guess, uh, and I do think that you know, well, maybe the problem solving skills that are required in a lab aren't required kind of you know you don't have to make the decisions in fractions of seconds uh, I do think the problem solving skill probably is kind of overlaps between physics and running okay so you don't really have that in rowing but one aspect of rowing where I find like the scientific uh, vibe sort of is in the training in the training because uh, so it's an endurance sport and so in, you know, there's a lot of uh, there's a lot of people actually studying the science um, the science behind training. So what kind of training improves what uh, physiological uh, thing and so on. And so I think the yeah the scientific mind helps in understanding how to train properly and why you need to do this and that. And maybe that helps in being motivated. So when you have to do a long session you know that is to work on like your aerobic capacity and, and or whatever and so because you know why you have to do it then you have more motivation and i guess that helps maybe i think probably the time where um physics was most useful for me in running thinking about it is um they've recently changed the methods of qualification for the olympics for um athletics uh, and as a result, the 2020 Olympics was the first Olympics, which was based off a very, very, very complicated um, qualification point system. Um, <laughs> and because I guess with COVID and things, everything was quite up in the air. Basically, you get points depending on how fast you run, uh, the quality of the race, which is like a rank that the race gets, and then where you finish in that race. Uh, and I left my qualification to really the last minute. So I did almost all the work in the three weeks before the deadline, despite the fact, you know, people had two years or something to qualify. Uh, and I do remember sitting down with an Excel sheet and writing out, you know, predictor equations that, you know, if I race in this race on this day, I expect to run this time and get this position, which will give me this many points. And if I look at every race in Europe in the next three weeks, you know, what points do I predict I'll get from each of them? And then only going to the ones where I was like, okay, if I do this, it'll be enough. And um, so, yeah, maybe maybe that gave me a bit of an edge over um, my competition. I was able to work out exactly what I needed to do. Um, and I'm not sure without a degree in physics, that would have been as easy. <laughs> I guess it's a good way to plan experiments as well. You know, what are the main things? What's the necessary? What's the most I can get out of, you know, the, the time that I have, the weeks that I have? Exactly. Yeah, so, I mean, you talked a little bit about uh, getting to qualify for the Olympics in three weeks' time. I mean, obviously that places it well within your PhD. So I was wondering what it was like uh, yeah, doing that whilst you're actually studying and, uh, and yeah, what was it like to actually fulfil that ambition? Was it 
something you've been looking at a long time or is it, is it something that came relatively recently? Yeah, so since I've been nine years old, I've had a very clear goal and that's to be to qualify for the Olympics. And I think a lot of sports have that, but in track and field in particular, and, you know, the Olympics Games is the only thing that matters. And so, yeah, for me, it was kind of a a long term goal. And I, I guess I really expected that Paris, the 2024 Olympics would be the Olympics I was aiming for. Um, but I had I had a very good, uh, I guess COVID came at a good time for me and I kind of had a chance to train more like a professional athlete and I had a very good 2020 and then early 2021 season uh, and with the Olympics being delayed there was kind of a lot of uncertainty I guess in terms of you know qualification and things like that and I kind of got to a point where it was maybe three and a half weeks before the deadline and I was able to look at these points and think okay you know actually my best races if I could put five of them together that would probably be enough to qualify and but the problem was you know I I only had kind of maybe one or two races that were up to that level and I needed five so I actually remember walking into my supervisor's office and being very honest with him and saying look I think there's a 10 maybe 15 percent chance that I could qualify for the Olympics but we're in the middle of COVID at the time so there was a lot of quarantine rules and I was saying you know if if I go every time I get back from a race I'm going to be in quarantine until the next one so I'm basically going to have to leave now and I'll be gone for basically the the rest of the month Uh, and I was quite nervous about it kind of as to whether I might like to uh, whether I should try to do this whether I should stick to the PhD focus on Paris and Mette my supervisor was really supportive and he just said to me look I don't know why you're still standing here Louise just go so, um, yeah, I packed my bag. I left the next day and I actually didn't come back to the UK for nearly a month just because I, I couldn't get back to the UK. I think it might have been a red listed country at the time. Uh, so, yeah, I hopped from country to country uh, and, yeah, did, took a lot of COVID tests and, you know, and raced and raced well. And, yeah, I came back, I think, maybe three and a half weeks later uh, and I had enough points and I'd qualified for the Olympics. So, you know, that conversation with Mete could have gone one or two ways. He could have said, oh, you know what, focus on your PhD. And to be honest, I probably would have said, yeah, that makes sense. And so to have someone who kind of believed in me almost as much, if not more than I did at that moment of time and just say, go, you know, go for it. And that was a huge factor in me um, qualifying for the Olympics that summer. Excellent. And now you mentioned you came to Cambridge with the idea of uh, pushing your rowing career forwards competing in the boat race so is that something that came around just before that or something you're looking at longer term or yeah well you mean the the olympics oh well so for you the cambridge oxford cambridge boat race i'm wondering whether that was something that uh yeah that you you were well aware of beforehand or something oh okay we're looking at places so yeah i mean um yeah so when you're rowing i guess uh no matter what country you're rowing in Everyone knows about uh, the, this race, so it's definitely something I knew, I knew about, and um, so I did. I did my undergrad in London, uh, so it's not really something I thought I could join until recently. I guess uh, I did my undergrad at Imperial College in London, and I guess because I was at this point, I felt very close to. I felt much closer to Oxford and Cambridge, and. It felt like it was actually um, a possible thing to do, and that it was a goal—a goal I could reach if I, I don't know, if I worked uh, worked for it. And so, yeah, after so like a few years into my undergrad, I was like, okay, I'm gonna try and put things in place. 
academically and uh, um, rowing wise as well to try and make it to one of those one of those two universities so that I can maybe try and do the boat race. Um, so yeah, I, I guess yeah, coming to Cambridge, I came to Cambridge with the idea of doing the boat race. Um, so yeah, it, it was really a, a project on the academic side and the sports side as well. Mm-hmm. And kind of looking to the future, I mean, you know, you've won the boat race. What are you, where are you planning to take your sports career and also your physics career? I mean, I guess it's not just that you came to Cambridge, you know, to do this one race, right? It's you came to Cambridge mm-hmm. because of the boat club, because of the training that you're going to get. Mm-hmm. Um, so where are you planning to take that forward? So the the goal, so yeah, the, the reason why I wanted to to join this thing is because it's such a such a big rowing event that you have to be so the, the the training so basically the training we have in Cambridge is as close as you can get to professional level without being a professional so that's basically the highest level maybe I could reach while being a student and so the idea is that okay I want to do research but I also want to be the best I can in rowing. So the only way to combine both is to go to Oxford or Cambridge, uh, in Europe at least. And so, yeah, the, the uh, I kind of lost my train of thought, but... Uh, <laughs> I guess what's yeah, next? <laughs> yeah, so what's next? So yeah, I guess what's next is to keep rowing, keep training hard, um, if possible, uh, do the boat race again and and win again. Um, so yeah, I'm definitely not planning on stopping rowing. So I'll try and do it for the the four years, the whole four years of my uh, PhD. Um, so get the PhD. Once that's done, I guess the goal is to see the plan is to see where I'm at in rowing, what's my level, if I can try to make it to the national team. Uh, and so yeah, I guess my goal is to see if I'm good enough to make it to the national team after my PhD. And if that's the case, maybe take a uh, two years off. Uh, work and uh, try and see if I can make it to the Olympics um, in 2028. I think that's uh, yeah, that, that would be the goal. So we'll keep an eye out. <laughs> yeah, and yeah. Louise, what about yourself? Um, when you're obviously you're still now com- trying to qualify for the next Olympics, I assume. <laughs> yeah, so uh, qualification for the Paris Olympics starts the 1st of July. So yeah, a lot of busy summer uh, and I actually finished my PhD in December. So I'm hoping to finish, well, get a lot of the qualification for Paris finished in the next few months and then finish my PhD at Christmas. And then the plan is to run full time until after the Paris Olympics. So yeah, I think having having balanced education and running for so long, I'm, I'm really excited and maybe a little nervous to see what it'd be like to be a, a full time athlete, um, but only for kind of nine months, I suppose. Um, but yeah, it, it works quite well for me, actually, because my partner is also doing a PhD here in Cambridge, so he doesn't finish until the year after me. So he can, we both stay based in Cambridge. I don't have to change my coach, my training partners, anything. I just spend hopefully a little bit less time in the lab and, and yeah, focus on running for a few months. And then, yeah, September 24, I'll have hopefully, fingers crossed, competed in two Olympics and finished my PhD. So from there, yeah, the world's my oysters, but who knows what I'm <laughs> yeah. If anyone wants to employ me, then just let me know. <laughs> Amazing. I was just going to say, in terms of the physics, I mean, do, do, do you find yourself drawn to more research or is it something that you want to apply in sort of industrial roles or uh, yeah, the, the sort of in the, the wider world outside of the laboratory and, uh, and academia? Um, 
continue. Yeah, sorry, I, I was going to say Luis probably has a better idea uh, <laughs> of that than me. Um, so because I'm just, I don't know, I find, so a lot of people ask this question actually, so what do you want to do after? So ideally I want to do research, I would like to do research, but it's so hard to tell. So this is my first year, the first year of my PhD. So it's like so hard to tell even what I'm going to be doing in two weeks. So like, <laughs> yeah. like, it's hard to, yeah, I can't really, I literally have no idea how things are going to uh, work out. Yeah. Well, that's you get in three years time then. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So for me, I think, um, you know, my skill sets from physics and sensing and, and my, I guess, knowledge of, you know, what's interesting and what we would like to know as sports people. And um, there's a couple of, I guess, uh, metrics that I think in, in sport could be um, better read out. So, for example, most people have, you know, watches on their wrists these days that measure their heart rate. Uh, and you're basically getting exactly I have one right now so um yeah you, you're getting kind of live feedback in terms of what a person or what an athlete's heart rate is and um, but there are a lot of other metrics I guess that would be quite interesting and um, and I'm kind of purposely being vague so not to leave all my cards <laughs> out but um there's a couple of metrics that I think it would be really interesting if we could read them out live both actually as a, for athletes and sports people but also from a medical point of view and um, so, yeah, after I'd really like to kind of explore that space. I haven't exactly worked out how I'm going to go about doing it and, you know, whether industry or university is the best place to be based. And um, but, yeah, I, I think it'd be, um, it'd be really fun to kind of mix, I guess, my passion and sport with my skill set, which is, you know, sensing or quantum sensing. And um, so, yeah, so I'm really hopeful to kind of be able to continue research uh, after after my PhD, but I'm not exactly sure yet um, what environment is the most compatible for my ideas or whether everyone will kind of reject me and say, absolutely not. <laughs> I mean, regardless okay. of where, that sounds like you would be the most qualified person to do that in the world. You know, I mean, that like you have a PhD in sensing and you know exactly what the runners need. So I don't know, I'd hire you. Whoever's listening, <laughs> go ahead. <laughs> Cool. Well, thank you both for joining us for this chat. It was really nice to um, not just, you know, get one person's perspective, but also this discussion that we've had. Um, so, yes, thanks for taking the time. It was great to have you. Thank you. Yeah, thank you. Thanks to Louis Shanahan and Noam Moon for this episode, which has been recorded and edited by our technician, Chris Brock. Check out the show notes for details of what's been discussed. And if you'd like to learn more about our work at the Cavendish, please go to www.phy.cam.ac.uk. Thanks for listening to People Doing Physics. We'll be back next month.